Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Settle in and relax. We have a little bit of housekeeping to do before we hit the road this week. Lately, it seems like every other week I have some changes to announce at Tales to Terrify. And as it turns out, yeah, this week is no exception. If you follow us on social media, support us on Patreon, or are part of our mailing list, you've no doubt heard the news that Tony C. Smith, our owner and founder of the District of Wonders, has decided to put Tales to Terrify up for sale. While that's put some of you faithful listeners in a state of unease, the outpouring of support and interest has really affirmed why we do this week after week. We love bringing unadulterated, unadorned, creepy tales to your waiting ears. So, fear not, children of the night. The wheels are in motion. Our humble little podcast will continue to ride on, carrying your imagination deep each week into the shadowed mists of the darkening night. I promise to share the details with you once they've fully hatched, but rest easy, because I can tell you right now, Tales to Terrify is here to stay. In fact, it's nearly that time of year again where you, too, can have the opportunity to have your most frightening yarns spun into sound, to be fed into hungry, waiting ears. That's right. Tales to Terrify will soon be once again accepting submissions. I'll share more details once we're officially open, but now's the perfect time to dust off that spine-tingling, blood-curdling tale you've been waiting to share with the world. Alright, that's enough podcast housekeeping for one week. Speaking of housekeeping, though, the next stop on our cross-country tour takes us to the state probably more famous than any other for its opulent and grandiose hotels, Nevada. Given the rich history of mob ties and hedonism, it's no surprise that there are plenty of frightening happenings and hotel hauntings from both Las Vegas and Reno. But what might surprise you is that the hotel often considered the most haunted place in Nevada isn't in either of those cities, but right at the halfway mark in between them. When banker and mining tycoon George Wingfield opened its doors with a huge champagne celebration in 1908, the Goldfield Hotel in Goldfield, Nevada, had a much glitzier reputation. At the time, it was a monument to opulence, considered the most luxurious hotel in the state. 
154 rooms that included luxuries like telephones, electric lights, a heating system, and even an elevator. All things the average person had rarely seen in real life, let alone experienced themselves. It had all the fit and finish of a palace. Mahogany paneling, leather-upholstered furniture, crystal chandeliers and gold leaf on the ceiling. Just having the means to book a room at the hotel was a sign of status and wealth. But when Goldfield's mines began to dry up, so too did the stream of visitors. Since then, the hotel's changed hands a number of times, and now sits abandoned and decaying, but not, as many visitors to the hotel would point out, empty. Probably the most famous inhabitant of the hotel is a woman named Elizabeth, who was George Wingfield's mistress. According to the story, when she became pregnant with Wingfield's child, rather than risk ruining his reputation and marriage, he chained her to the radiator in room 109, where she stayed for her entire pregnancy. Each day he'd come by to give her food and water, and each day she'd cry for hours, begging for her freedom. As soon as the child was born, Elizabeth disappeared. Some think she died in childbirth. But you'd be among the majority if you suspected she met a far darker end at the hands of Wingfield. Even so, she may have gotten off easy compared to her newborn child. According to the story, Wingfield took the infant deep down into the cellars and threw the child into the mine shaft that runs beneath the hotel. With such a grisly end, it's no surprise that the restless spirits of Elizabeth and her child may have had trouble leaving. It's no longer open to the public, but those who have explored the hotel report seeing an apparition of a crying woman searching and calling out for her child, along with the sounds of a baby crying, drifting up from deep beneath the hotel. While certainly the most gruesome, Elizabeth and her child aren't the only two to have met their end in the hotel. Two suicide victims, a woman who hanged herself and a man who jumped from the roof of the hotel, are also said to wander the corridors. But if there's one lingering guest to watch out for, it's the oh-so-subtly-named entity, the Stabber. Anyone entering the hotel, it's said, risks being attacked at random and, you guessed it, stabbed with a long knife. It seems just because people check out of the Goldfield Hotel doesn't mean they're always able to leave. Let's move on to some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Dana Hammer. Dana Hammer is the author of several short stories that have been featured in various anthologies, journals, and magazines. You can find links to her work at danahammer.com. She is currently working on a novel, which will hopefully be published soon. She is not a cannibal. Children of the Night, join me for Dana Hammer's A Love Story, a Tales to Terrify original. six months or so since the virus wiped out basically all of humanity, Denise had gotten a little stir-crazy. In the old days, she'd been a social butterfly, brightly colored and cheerful, always shuttling around from party to party. Now her life was as drab and gray as a Cold War-era bomb shelter, and just as lonely. She'd search the homes of her friends and family, their workplaces, the local hospital, which was a place she never intended to go again as long as she lived. Good God, the smell. But she hadn't had any luck finding any of her loved ones alive. 
just dead bodies. Lots and lots of dead bodies. But there was someone in her life, a special someone. And while he wasn't an ideal companion, he was a warm, living human being and not a bad-looking one either. In fact, in ordinary circumstances, he would have been downright hot. But, locked up as he was, he was a bit scruffy. Denise thought of him now, twirling a piece of hair around her finger. Dallas Strickland. At one time, a wealthy playboy entrepreneur. Now, a prisoner. The last remaining prisoner in the state penitentiary. The cannibal. Of course, it's not as if Denise had gone out of her way to befriend a man imprisoned for murder and desecration of a corpse. It's just that she'd been so desperate for company. She had looked everywhere. She'd even sent up balloons with messages in them and thrown bottles with letters in them into the ocean. No response. So, when she found Dallas in the prison, alive but just barely, she was, first and foremost, ecstatic. She'd immediately started babbling at him, barely making any sense in her excited state, before she recognized him from the news. Oh my God, she breathed. You're Dallas Strickland. He hadn't bothered to deny it. He just lay there, panting little shallow pants, and it was then that Denise realized he was probably close to dying. She looked around his cell. There was no food or water. Well, Dallas was no saint, but Denise was no monster. She reached into her backpack and retrieved a water bottle and tossed it to him through the bars of his cell. He grabbed it greedily and gulped it down so fast it baffled her. Did the man even have a gag reflex? Turns out he did, because he almost immediately vomited up the water all over the concrete floor. Denise retrieved another bottle and gave it to him. Drink it a little more slowly, okay? He obeyed her. Meanwhile, Denise rooted around in her pack for some crackers and raisins and pushed them through the bars. Eat these when your stomach feels a little more settled. Dallas nodded. Thank you, he crept. Denise wondered how long it had been since he had spoken aloud. She spoke aloud all the time, but it was only to herself, which didn't count. I'll come back and check on you tomorrow she said, and hurried out the door. She hadn't meant to develop feelings for him. Truly, she hadn't. The the guy was one sick bastard. Just thinking of the things that had been in his mouth should have been enough to destroy any urge she might ever have to kiss him. But loneliness is a powerful force, and he was a really hot serial killer. And it's not like she could just leave the guy to starve to death. What kind of a person would do such a thing? Not Denise. So now she went to visit him every day. She brought food and water, of course, but also card and board games. Lately, she brought books, which they took turns reading aloud to each other. She brought candles, and they would eat their dinner together by romantic candlelight. Damp, cold stone walls, giving the impression of a medieval castle, rather than a correctional facility. You know you could let me out of here. He often said to her, I don't think I'm ready for that, she always replied. It was the kindest way she could think of to say, I'm afraid you'll eat me like you did all your other girlfriends. He seemed to understand, though, and was never angry with her for her decision. But he never stopped trying. What would happen to me if you died? I would starve to death. Don't be silly. I'm only 30 years old, and I'm really healthy. He would sigh and nod, weary. If you let me out, I could take care of myself. You wouldn't have to come here. Better yet, I could take care of you. A suggestive waggle of eyebrow. Denise would giggle at his antics. Of course she wanted him to touch her, to be with her in a real physical way, but the dangers were too great. 
If she kept him locked up, he couldn't hurt her, so locked up is exactly where he would stay. That was beautiful, Denise bleated, eyes watering. Dallas had just read her a poem that he had written just for her. No one had ever written her a poem before, and she had never felt so special. I meant every word, he said, hands around the black steel bars, peering through them with sexy intensity. You saved my life. You are my eternal sunshine in this dark place. She wiped away a tear. How she wanted to leap at him and reach a hand through the bars, touch him. Instead, she pulled her blanket around her more tightly. A sad substitution for the hug she wanted. You know, before all this, he gestured around, indicating the prison, the world, and everything. You would have trusted me. I would have made you trust me. I would have given it all to you, whatever you wanted. I would have treated you like a queen. I don't need all that, she said, waving away his words. Which is exactly why you deserve it, he retorted. I wish there was some way I could prove to you that I would never hurt you. Because I wouldn't, Denise. Never. Not after all that you've done for me. I did what anyone would do, she murmured, not looking him in the eye. No, you didn't. You did so much more. There was a pause as he looked her up and down. You're a remarkable woman, Denise. Isn't there some part of you that wants what we could have together? Because it could be spectacular, you and me. Don't you want to be held, touched, pleasured, loved? Now Denise was crying because, yes, she did want those things. She hadn't been hugged or touched in over a year. Even before everyone was dead, when the virus was just getting started in its path of annihilation, everyone was afraid to touch each other for fear of contagion. She thought of her husband, who had moved out to avoid infecting her, died alone in their summer cabin. She pushed it aside. She, she couldn't let her mind go there to those she had lost. But here was this man sitting in front of her, a handsome, intelligent man who was promising he would never hurt her. He very well might be the last man on earth. If she kept him locked up, would anyone ever touch her again? She would be safe, but would it be worth it? She sat, staring at him, his uber-masculine jaw highlighted by the warm flames. She remembered what it had looked like before on the news, clean-shaven. Now it was furry and gruff. She wondered what it would feel like on her neck, on her stomach, between her thighs. If I... She swallowed. If I were to let you out, he straightened up, alert. If I let you out, would you be offended if I armed myself? Like if I carried a gun? I would expect no less, he smiled. She exhaled. And you would promise never to hurt me in any way? I swear it. She nodded and stood. I'll be back tomorrow, and I'll give you your freedom. And we can be together. He leapt up from the floor and reached his arms toward her, inviting her into them. Oh, Denise, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I love you so much, baby. Thank you. Denise hesitated. She hadn't let him touch her before, but she was going to have to start trusting him. She approached the bars and he pulled her close, gently so as not to hurt her by banging her on the middle. The warmth of his skin, the scent of his body odor, the fur on his face, 
were the most intoxicating sensations she had experienced in ages. I love you too, she murmured. She pulled herself back, though she didn't want to. It was time to leave. She had to go find a gun. That was Dana Hammer's A Love Story, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a baudrin that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her six-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. Thank you, Michelle. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Our second tale comes to us from Zach Chapman. The story tonight is part of his Spellslinger series, which we've heard entries from as recent as episode 370, and as far back as episode 288. Zach Chapman is an editor, author, gamer, and podcaster. His fiction appears in numerous anthologies and podcasts. Like Robert Howard and Joe Lansdale, he's a Texan and loves writing pulp. Follow Zach's publications on Twitter at ChappyZach, or check out his upcoming Spellslinger graphic novel coming out in 2019. You can learn more at thespellslinger.com. And now, Zach Chapman's Rick and the Green Gunslinger, a Tales to Terrify original. splash of warm, piss-smelling water washed over me like a baptism, shaking me from my coma. I lay sprawled up against a shanty tavern wall, blood running down my left leg. The damn thing throbbed beneath me. The hard cracked dirt dug into my palms. Above, the sky danced with heat waves, blurring my vision. They shot you, Sybil said, flinging the empty bucket at the wall next to me. Her new body was elegant, curving in all the right places. A week ago, she'd had to shave twice a day to keep her feminine appearance. Now she was completely post-spell. I paid a Karankawa elder to shape her body however she wanted. Sybil had caught my heart at a charitable moment. "'Must have shot me from behind,' I said. "'No?' 
partner had the jump on me. I'm a spell-slinger, for Christ's sake. Mayberry caught you cheating at Hold'em. You got too loud, whispering your illusions. Mayberry went at you, but you were too drunk to handle him. He cracked your head with a bottle of rotgut, and Jamie blasted your femur. Whole thing happened before I could scream, let alone get around from behind the bar. I chased them out of Trans Tavern, but they'll come back, along with every card player in Odessa that you cheated with your illusions. I looked down at the wound. Blood oozed out of a hole in my jeans. Just regular bullet penetration. No spells. I'd recover if I could flee Odessa before the angry mob hanged me. It was high time I chased off to some other town anyways. Sybil continued. Jamie robbed everything in your wallet, and Mayberry wanted to take your magic gun, but I told them any spells they shot out of it would backfire on them. Spellslinger curse. Good girl. Help me up. This devil-trodden Texas ground ain't easy on my bones. You'll get blood on my blouse. You've me to thank that you fill it out so nicely. Now be grateful and help me up. We stumbled back into Trans Tavern. Sybil was still shaky, getting used to her new body. Only the usual pre-spell and occasional post-spell dancing girls perused the saloon. A lone man practiced throwing darts at a dartboard next to an oil painting of the Gulf Coast. Above the bar, a pair of deer antlers and beetle horns hung askew. Indeed, a trickle of blood from my forehead dropped onto the velvet of Sybil's blouse. I wiped it off with a fingernail as she set me down at the bar. Sighing, she poured a tanglefoot. It stank of being cut with turpentine. Thanks, I said. It's not for you, it's for me. Come now, my hangover and heat stroke are almost as painful as this damn hole in my leg. Pour me a glass. I will not. Just a sip. Rick, you need to go. Hide. She looked genuinely worried for me. That made the pain of my hangover abate, but not my leg. I'd say run for the station, but you'd never make it on that bad leg. They'll be watching the street like raptors, ready to hang you for this. How many people have you cheated? How much money have you stolen? Stolen ain't the right word. I snatched her glass and poured a tad on the gash in my forehead. Can't know for sure. How much does a new body cost? I'll put it to sleep. I've heard enough about my breasts this or my bosom that. I'm sure you've enjoyed them as much as I have. Ought to let Mayberry's mob shoot your other leg and hang you from a tree. They will come. And when they do, Christ, what are you going to do? Guessing you don't got a wagon nor pulling beetles. You got a safe room somewhere in the saloon? Figure I'd stow away until I can pull this lead out of me and get healed up. Could be a few weeks. Then I'll bug off on the next train to San Antone. Get the hell out of here. No, Rick. Sybil snatched the glass back and swallowed the rest. We don't have trapdoors or revolving walls. And Jamie knows all the nooks and crannies of trans. It'll be impossible to hide you here. Can't you just heal yourself with a spell? Were I not such an idle spell-slinger, I'd not be so limited. I shook my head and motioned to the bullets on my ammunition belt. Each glowed with a slightly different color than the last. No heel shot. Bit of a hassle to come by. Someone cleared their throat from behind me, and I turned to see a large man with a green feather sticking out of his cowboy hat. I hadn't seen him as we'd entered, but he must have been in the saloon the whole time. His smile was a bit too handsome, and not unlike a snake oil salesman's. It was the kind of smile that, were I well inside a bottle of rot gut, I'd like to punch the teeth right out of. Pardon, friend. My name is Zeal. I heard you two arguing from down the bar. Saw a man shoot you over cards earlier. I believe I can aid you tremendously. Sorry, we're not friends and I'm not interested. I'm a spell-slinger. I revealed the revolver on my hip. Red runes blazed up the barrel like hellfire. I can handle myself. Sybil flashed an angry look at me. Listen to what he has to say. Maybe he knows of a place where you can hide. Zeal's grin grew wider. 
Indeed you are a spell-slinger. Rick, was it? I have a proposal for you, one that could save you from your card-swindled victims. Sybil, you seen this guy before? Heard of a zeal before? I've been in Odessa a few months now, and I've never seen you. Rick, I'm a traveler, not unlike yourself. He shifted his duster behind his hip to reveal a casting gun, much like mine, only with green runes. I could read a mix of Apache and Celtic etchings threading the barrel. The craftsmanship rivaled the best I'd seen. My guts sank to the moldy saloon floorboards. Spell slingers were bounty hunters, usually killing monsters and the like. But a crooked one might cannibalize his own, and surely if I didn't already have a price on my head in Odessa, I would when word got around. Damn illusions. Damn cards. Damn cursed rotgut. What do you want, then, spell-slinger? I asked. He pulled a purse full of green and gray backs from his satchel and placed it on the bar. What I propose is a duel. When Sybil heard him say that, she stopped pouring his drink. I shook my head. And why would I duel you for a purse half full of dead currency from the Confederacy? You are infernally thick. I'm not finished. I don't duel in the traditional spell-slinger way. Here's how it works. If you want what's in that purse, you load three of any spell into your gun. We go outside. Take your time. Fire away when you like. If you scrape me with just one bullet, you win the duel. If you miss all three spells, in three days I have my chance to hit you with any three spells I choose. Ten paces, high noon, all that. For both of us. Are you slow? I don't want what's in that purse. That amount of money won't pacify the mob when it gets here. Ah, you were right, but there is something else in this. He reached over and peeled off a crumpled gray back to reveal a shining golden bullet. Again, Apache and Celtic symbols reflected off the casing. This time I could make out healing signs. There were other smaller runes all over the slug, but I couldn't read all of them. Not only was this a healing spell, it would be a damn powerful one at that. What is that? Sybil asked, looking at the glowing slug. That? I squinted at the bullet, making sure it wasn't an illusion. That'll fix my leg. But why? she asked. I nodded at Sybil's question. Exactly, Zeal, why this offer? You suicidal? Three shots from ten paces? Whatever spells I want? And what do I have to offer in return? I've nothing. Jamie and Maybury raided my wallet. You offer your neck. Three days' time. It'll fetch quite the bounty. And as for the three shots, well, you're drunk, losing blood. I can see from your pale eyes that you're a soul-eater and haven't ingested a Karankawa soul decoction to fortify your aim or spells for days. You won't hit me. You can't. I stood up from the bar, but winced in pain as my legs stiffened and refused movement. No, Rick! Sybil raised her voice. Don't! This is some trick! Obviously a sucker bet, I said. Think quickly, Rick, Zeal said. The mob will be here soon. Don't you want that leg healed? Maybe he'll just hop away from Odessa like wounded game. The hell with that. We stood ten paces apart in the slum alley behind Trans Tavern. Dust scratched across our boots like little twirling tornadoes. Above us, linen hung like specters, suspended between the saloon and a neighboring shanty. Sybil had cursed at me and refused to come out, but Zeal had convinced her that we needed witnesses. So she brought out a dozen dancing girls to hide behind as we dueled. Almost insignificantly, the purse of money lay between Zeal and I, a golden bullet glowing at its heart. Rick, the witnesses, boy whores, are ready. Let your half of the duel begin. He stuck his chest out like an arrogant Mustang. Yeah, mind what you call the ladies. Their service is just as honorable as yours or mine. 
Call the abominations whatever you like, as you were, Rick. If you find them abominations, why were you in trans? Felt the presence of a fellow spellslinger. Decided to stick my head in. Prick. I'd enjoy putting a bullet in zeal. The pain in my leg did cause my hands to quiver slightly, or maybe it was the hangover, or lack of a decoction. Whatever it was, at this distance, it wouldn't matter. I could be wearing flannel long johns in Anchorage, Alaska on New Year's Day, and I'd still blow a hole in his chest, and I'd only need one bullet to do it. From my ammunition belt, I plucked out the first round my fingers fell on, a minor earth spell that glowed green and chambered it. I holstered the gun, winked at where I thought Sybil might be hiding in the crowd of dancers, and drew, firing from the hip. My spell, aimed at Zeal's right thigh, I didn't really want to kill the spell-slinger, curled away in a green streak and buried itself in the ground before his feet. A thorny vine sprouted from the ground and darted for his boot, but redirected, withered, and blew away to dust before it could reach its target. He returned my wink. Must have some cheap ward for protection. Shouldn't be too hard to break. The scent of roses and gunpowder issued from the barrel of my gun. Fresh earth spell. I chambered a spell with a bit more bite. This time I aimed at his center of gravity. The kick of my gun numbed my wrist and the blast deafened my ears. Flinching dancers screamed and shielded their eyes from the blazing brightness. I staggered, nearly spent from casting the spell and buckled due to my shot leg. When I regained focus, Zeal posed firm. The ground around him scorched as if Satan himself had pissed a ring around him. He was laughing. Horse, son, I whispered. The hell kind of protection you have. He reached inside his shirt and pulled out a small bottle tied around his neck. Apache blood and rattlesnake venom in a glass vial made from the melted sands of Ireland. He shook the small trinket, then eyed it closer. Oh, look what you did. There's a hairline crack up its side. Impressive. So, Rick, do you have enough energy left to shatter my ward? You look to be on your last leg. Shut up. I was on one knee, teeth gritted. If I cast too powerful a spell at this point, it could put me in a coma. But I didn't really have a choice. If I could just down him, his healing bullet would set me on track to ditch the hell out of Odessa. I chambered the strongest thing I had in my ammunition belt. For the second time that day, I woke up to warm water doused on my face. Zeal knelt over me, smiling his snake-oil grin, and tossed the golden healing slug at my chest. Know what? I'm a nice guy. Keep the spell. Think you might need it. Look like you've been through quite the fuss. He reached into his shirt and pulled out the vial. A crack split like a dozen lightning bolts shined in the noon sun. Almost broke the ward. It won't last much longer. Anyway, be seeing you in three days. Try to elude the mob till then. As I fought for consciousness, Zeal turned and, gently moving a corseted dancing girl out of his path, left the alley. A couple of the girls helped Sybil drag me into the trans. I nodded in and out as they dumped me on the ratty saloon floor. It smelled of turpentine and rotting dip. With strong hands, Sybil shook me back to consciousness. Texana said Mayberry's heading this way from across town. Should be here any minute. What do we do? Most of the girls were wandering off, no longer interested now that I'd lost the duel. I handed Sybil my gun and slid the healing spell over to her. I didn't have the energy to cast the spell, and even though Sybil wasn't a spell-slinger, she wouldn't faint just from firing the one spell. I needed her to heal me. I motioned for her to pick up the gun. Shoot me, I whispered. Are you slow? she screamed. I'm not going to shoot you. I don't know what I'm doing. I'd never seen a spell-slinger gun before you came to Odessa. 
It ain't going to hurt me. Rick? Sybil, you gotta do it, before the mob gets here. The bullet'll heal me. Now come on, chamber the spell. There you go. Yes, point the barrel right at my chest. My head lolled back, and I could only hear her gasp, not wanting to pull the trigger. Thunder roared in the saloon. Then everything fell dead quiet. Good, Sybil. The pain abated, but the weariness from overcasting remained. I could run and shoot any number of ordinary bullets, but one more cast and I might find myself on Queer Street. I snatched my gun from Sybil, who was holding it reverently, still dazed from casting her first spell, then rolled to my feet and gave her a kiss. Thanks, Sybil. You were wonderful. Now, I'd leave you a right tip, but Mayberry and Jamie took my wallet. Enjoy your new body. Hope the dancers are plenty jealous. I gave her another kiss and fled the saloon before she could say a word. It was a good thing, too, that I left just then, because I nearly bumped into the mob led by Mayberry on my way out. Fool, I thought. Zeal was a damn fool to give me that healing spell. Did he really think I'd stay three days in Odessa so I could square off with him at the end of it all? If I wasn't hanged first? Did he think I'd adhere to some sort of moral spell-slinger code? The hell with that. Thanks for the spell. I'll see you when Christ Almighty walks the earth again. Don't let me keep you waiting at high noon. So we ran for the edge of town, towards the train station, not looking behind, wouldn't be the first town I'd left in a similar fashion. As I ditched town, I could see the station, people hustling on and off train cars, just on the horizon. I'd be there in time to catch the train if I hoofed it. But as I ran, the station seemed as far away as it had ever been, right on the horizon, not getting any closer. Folks clamored aboard. I ran harder. Doors shut, and the conductor blew his whistle. In my overcast state, I gasped, pushing my body as far as it would go. Missing the train would spell death in shitty Odessa by the hangman's noose. In the distance, smoke filled the sky and the train left the station. That's okay, I told myself. I'd catch the next one. Surely there'd be another before the day was over. But there the station still stood still stuck on the horizon like a horsefly smashed against a saloon window. Not a damn bit closer. I watched the ground as I slowed to a trot. A bush. A Texas-horned lizard weeping blood from a successful ward against a hungry coyote. A crack the size of my knuckle, shaped like lightning. Tan weeds struggling out of earth. I continued looking down, never changing my direction, until I saw the lizard again, eyes now brown, crusty with dry blood, the same lizard, as if I'd been walking in circles. The station still lingered out of grasp. I'd been had. I needed to go back to Trans, find the shell of that bullet, and see what the hell Zeal had cast on me aside from heel. The click of spurs sounded behind me. I spun on my boots, only to come face to face with Mayberry and his damn crew, a dozen other card players I'd swindled. Blood glimmered in their eyes and hate pumped in their veins. Yet he looked past me, through me, towards the station, and stated, Let's ambush him, boys, before he catches a train. We'll lie and wait for him there. At once they rushed past me, as if I were a plane's phantom. The goddamn hell was in that bullet, I shouted. The doors to the saloon easily gave way to my charging shoulder. Surprised patrons looked up quizzically. Eyebrows raised at the banging doors. Do you see me? I whispered. After a moment, the patrons went back to darts and drinking, having seen nothing. I raved. Am I dead? A goddamn ghost? No one stirred from their drinks. I scanned the floor, searching for the healing spell's empty casing. Maybe the etchings would give me a clue as to Zeal's spell. A glint caught my eye, and I bent down to pick up a silver half-dollar and cursed, slamming on the table, 
hard enough to make a few drinks rattle. "'Where is it?' I shouted. "'Rick!' Sybil approached from behind the bar, looking surprised. "'I thought you'd run to the station. Mayberry and the others went out there looking for you. You've got to—' "'You see me?' I said, grabbing her. The jar of rotgut she was holding sloshed out from the glass, fell to the floor, and seeped into the floorboards. "'The casing. Have you seen the casing from the spell you cast to heal me?' She reached into the pocket and pulled out the shell. Hesitantly, she handed it to me. I was going to keep it as a memento of you. I studied the shell and discovered three runes I'd never seen before. A throat cleared behind me. I turned to see Zeal stroking his green feather. Trying to figure out what spell you're under? Wondering why no one can see you? Why you can't flee Odessa? "'Little trick did you play on me,' I said, throwing the shell at his chest. "'Sure I healed you, or she did. "'But that's not all. "'I'd like to call it a limbo bullet. "'It's a spell I designed myself. "'Those who have never cast a spell before won't see you, "'and until the spell wears off, "'you'll be bound to the location where it was cast. "'Time passes. "'Odessa looks for you. "'Bounty goes up. At the end of three days, I duel you, win, take you in, and receive the inflated bounty. He winked, got up, and right before he left the saloon said, From this corner I revealed your card illusions. And hours ago I thought Zeal the fool. That night, after too many tanglefoot and cactus wines, I pissed off Sybil with a lewd comment and staggered out of trans, attempting to break the limbo spell through sheer stumbling willpower. Hours later, she found me passed out on the edge of town and brought me back to her place. I woke up to my own groans, a headache from soul decoction withdrawal. Burning sage from the night before lingered, sweetening the smell of Sybil's apartment. For the next two days, each morning, I started out attempting to break limbo, shooting spells across my inescapable barrier, drinking soul decoctions, carving new spells myself. At night, I drank rotgut on Sybil's tab and slept in her apartment. On the morning of the third day, I was all out of soul decoctions, so using my newly invisible state, I pickpocketed enough greenbacks to buy some decoctions off of a shaman. "'What brings you to trade, stranger?' the traveling preacher asked from inside his deer-hide shelter that did well to shade him from the Texas sun. Being a holy man, he saw me despite the limbo spell. A clerical collar contrasted the faded tattoos scarring his knuckles. Before him lay a mat with multicolored beads, seashells, crucifixes, and a quiver of arrows pulsated with simple spells for accuracy and speed. Preacher, shaman, salesman. I'd seen many of these patchwork men traveling through towns after the war. Before I could ask for soul decoctions, a young woman carrying a crying bundle bullied past me and began whispering to the preacher. Immediate illogical anger rose in me. At high noon I'd die, and the world would abide. The other girls say they've given their babies to you for three silver dollars— and that you won't sacrifice them to any gods. The preacher nodded. We raise the children until their indentured service is complete. They have the tribe's protection during this time. Then they are free. How long is that? How long until he will be freed? She looked down at the crying bundle baking in the sun. When he is a man grown. Preacher, will he be safe? Any member of the tribe who is a servant of the church has the shaman's protection. She didn't weep, only handed the struggling babe to the preacher in exchange for her three silver dollars. I had to admit it was a fate better than many a strumpet's unwanted child. The preacher traced taloned fingers over the infant's pink skin. A smell of gulf breeze brushed past, chilling me, salting my soul with whispered Karankawa chants. A blue light surrounded the babe. The mother was gone. The elder preacher held the writhing mass in his arms. 
You have any soul decoctions? I asked, hoping if I dosed enough, I'd shatter Limbo with a multi-soul-enhanced spell. A soul eater? Your eyes look too calm to be a soul eater. Been running low for a few days. I need something strong enough to lift a curse. The preacher squinted his beady eyes, studying me with genuine fascination. Ah, yes, my perception has faded, but now I see with shaman sight. The curse, a smoky glass bulb, surrounds you, perfectly smooth but impossible to penetrate. This spell you are under appears both foreign and familiar, a dark curse but not lethal. I see what ails you shall fade quickly by sundown, maybe sooner. Spell this powerful cannot endure long. It don't need to last long to kill me, I murmured. What is that? You still want to break it before the curse runs its course? Hmm, no, I don't believe I have powerful enough soul decoctions or totems for sale. I slumped, defeated. Really, it wouldn't have worked anyway. At the climax of my brooding, an idea struck me. Zeal had all of Odessa lined up either side of the main strip, ready to witness the world's greatest magic trick. There was no escaping his show. No matter what direction I walked, I approached the center of town. A town crier wailed, and indeed my bounty had risen. Zeal's plan was so damn perfect it hurt. Sure enough, there were dancing girls from transit aside, waiting for me to appear, ready to remind me and the crowd of what they bear witness to, of our dual agreement. Now, Zeal shouted to the crowd, Rick, the illusionist, the thief, the plague, the false spell-slinger, shall appear to you, dear people of Odessa, and I shall make him pay for his sins against your community. His hand blurred, his gun recoiled, and a bullet buzzed by my ear. I felt limbo lift, the metaphorical glass bulbs shatter. The crowd cheered Zeal, threw dirt and rocks at me. He nominated a dancer to recount our dual agreement. As she described the three failed spells, I spotted Maybury emphatically wave his limp cowboy hat. After she finished, Zeal spoke. Rick, please understand, after all you've put this town through, I can't trust your word. Remove your weapon. Teeth gritted. I unbuckled my holster. Sybil emerged from the crowd, saying nothing. Kissed my cheek before taking the gun away. I wanted to compliment her form, but worried I might say it all wrong, just like I always had. She backed away. Spellslinger! Zeal hollered. Are you ready for my half of the duel? I spat. Very well. Here's a demonstration of what you have to look forward to. His green revolver spat purple fire. The spell swallowed a patch of Texas earth three feet in front of me. Twisted limbs, claws, tentacles flailed towards me from a growing dark portal. Inhuman moans, putrid stench. I'll admit I flinched. The portal vanished. The crowd gasped, then cheered. That's better than he deserves. Give him a good scare before you send him off. Nah, he ain't worth wasting another spell. But waste another spell he did. This time he shot right above my head. A cloud appeared the perfect size and shape to vomit rain and drench me and only me. Odessa howled with laughter. Thanks, I said. I was parched in this heat. Per the dueling terms, you're down to one last spell. Make it count. Eager, he grunted, and pointed his green gun at me and pulled the trigger. A blue concussive blast nearly knocked me from my feet. My lungs filled with a salty ocean breeze. The spell ricocheted right back at zeal, striking him mid-chest. That bottled ward he wore for protection burst, staining his shirt with blood and snake venom. A void opened, blacker than pitch. The demons of his spell leaked out like tongues licking, tasting for flesh, crawling for him. 
Then he was gone, swallowed whole by the void. I felt the three silver dollars in my breast pocket and whispered a prayer of thanks to the preacher's protection. I may not have been a free man, but at least I was alive. Silence stung the crowd. Then someone upchucked. Mayberry began shouting. Chaos erupted. Sybil, my gun! She threw the revolver as Mayberry's gang circled me. The preacher tribe's protection would ward off spells, but not ordinary bullets. So I dove for a barrel of produce, the nearest cover, and planned my escape from Odessa. My debt to the Karankawa tribe and church was just starting, not that I planned to actually fulfill it. Bullets spat wood, shredding my cover in a spray of barrel fragments. Smoke with the scent of fresh cedar and gunpowder curled from the multiplying bullet holes. I loaded a fistful of spells, and, scrambling to disappear in the rabble, I blew Sybil a kiss and headed for the station. Epilogue Bruised, bleeding, but triumphant, I stood at the station. I was soaked in the stench of gunpowder and arcane. Spell fatigue blurred my vision, but in the distance I could just make out an approaching train. As the train neared, the day grew cooler. Sea salt tinged the air, and I shivered. Worry seeped into my chest. Maybe something from Zeal's bullets still lingered. The train arrived, and car doors slid open. A familiar isolation. An agreement unfulfilled. The three silver dollars burned in my pocket. I stepped forward, but an invisible chain bound me. I felt the presence of the preacher, his leathery hands reaching out, grasping my soul, dragging me back to town. The car doors slid shut. That was Zach Chapman's Rick and the Green Gunslinger, as read by Dan Grzynski. Dan lives in Tulling, New York, near Syracuse, and earns his living bending the unseen forces of nature to his will as a broadcast engineer. He's been a recording engineer, electronics technician, repairer of broken things, and regularly reads for LibriVox. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now, consider supporting our podcast on Patreon, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts, so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editor, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invade your mind with more Tales to Terrify. Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.